Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Clebby, your host, and with me today, we've got a full panel. All right, Caleb Wells. Hey. Welcome, Caleb. Hey, y'all. Hey. How's it going? Good. Is hurricane season over for you finally? Not not officially, I don't think. But, you know, <laughs> hey, we've we've made it this far. A couple of other weeks won't kill us, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, hurricanes for you. We're getting snowstorms this weekend. So oh, okay. <laughs> in my area... Sunday, we're supposed to be uh, a low of maybe single digits. So Woo. only a couple of weeks ago, we were 80 degrees. So big change for us. That's why I live in the South. I'll <laughs> take the hurricanes over the snow any day. Wow. Wow. Yep. Not bad. We also have Wailu. Hey, mate. How you doing? Hey, good. Good day, mate. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I could try. Uh, God. All right. Um, How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Good. Uh, we're getting a lot of rain here soon, actually. I think I think we're getting La Lina or something. Um, so it's going to be raining for literally the next week. But it's going to be a bit fun at home with the kids. So. Better than fires. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Although <laughs> this means that this will be more fuel for when summer comes. Mm, I see. Yep. And we have Joel Schobert. Hey, Joel. How are you hey, doing? John, how are you doing? Good. And he's, you got some snow. That's yeah, what I've heard. We've, uh, we've been under a solid blanket for about a week now. So uh, I guess we could have a snow off contest here, but I think I might be winning right now. Probably. Probably. All right. Our guest today is Andrew Locke. Welcome, Andrew. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm in England, so we just got rain. <laughs> just rain. Rain? <laughs> Always. <laughs> wow. That's what I'm, I'm not too far from Seattle. That's, you know, Seattle's also known for rain. So I can, uh, I can relate to you. Yeah, right. it's just gray days. <laughs> Do you ever have trouble just getting into the flow? You find that your tool is great, like Visual Studio, but you could just get more out of it or get some stuff out of your way or have it give you better feedback that you would be able to get into flow easier. Well, let me tell you about Code Rush. Code Rush actually solves this problem for you. So the first thing that it does is it actually gives you a visualizer on the way that the code is set up and it actually helps you debug stuff in an intuitive way that makes it easy for you to figure out what's going on. This really helps me stay in the flow when I'm trying to write code. Another thing that it does is it has a whole bunch of navigation options that you can get used to. Now, this is something that I figured out with Emacs was something that I really got into. So when I started using Emacs, just the key bindings and, and kind of the natural flow of things made me a much, much more efficient programmer. And the quick navigation in Code Rush is awesome. You should definitely try it out. They have code analysis, so they'll pick out some of the issues maybe for complexity or diagnose some other code issues that'll point out code smells, it'll help you refactor your code. So the code analysis is another thing where I don't have to actually go in and sit down and think, okay, have I made any mistakes in this code? Because it actually highlights them. And finally, it just validates like your code coverage and all of the other things that you're trying to look at and gives you real numbers and real feedback on the quality of your coding and the quality of your tests. So go check out Code Rush. You can get it at devexpress.com slash products slash Code Rush, or just go to devchat.tv slash Code Rush and it'll send you to the right place. Once again, that's devchat.tv slash Code Rush. So uh, welcome to the show and thanks for coming. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got into programming and how you got into .NET. Sure. So I'm an ASP.NET Core developer. I I got, I got a bit of a later start than a lot of people. I didn't start programming when I was a kid, really. My dad tried to teach me basic at one point, and he showed me the print numbers on the screen, and I was like, meh, fine. 
whatever. I played games and I enjoyed that sort of side of it, but I never really, never really got into it until I got to uni. And so I did, I always like maths and science and things. So I did engineering degree. And then in the first year of that, we had a couple of programming courses and assembly and C++. And that's where I really realized that's, that's actually what I enjoyed. That's what I wanted to do. So I kept doing as much of that as I could and started picking up jobs on the side, just doing, doing a bit of programming here and there. And, and then it was when I, I went on to do, do a PhD. And again, it was just mostly because I could do more programming that way. I couldn't get the, the job that I wanted at the time. And so I did the PhD and did the programming on the side. And after that, I came out of it and finally got my programming job. So that was about, I was, I was quite late to the .NET party, really. That was, I guess, .NET 3.5 was when I started, which is still 10 years ago, I guess. Right. So you, uh, love yeah, assembly? you love assembly? I, I, I enjoyed assembly at the time. I only did, I, I did one, one course of it, but it was, it's logical. It's, you know, you obviously can't really build anything. I got anything lights and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, yeah, you know, thought that was yeah, where it really yeah. started to realize that you could actually build a lot of things. It was wind, wind forms. And I was just suddenly you got desktop applications seemed to really, you know, show what was part of what I could actually achieve. Yeah, it's kind of kind of good to know, you know, what what the code that you write actually ends up at down when it actually work actually run through the computer. So, it's a little bit uh, beneficial to know that dealing with registries and, you know, peek and poke and pop and all the different branches that you can do once it gets down to that level. But, uh, yeah, man, in my college days, that was that was just really really tedious. The tools have gotten better since then, but yeah, it's a good it's good base knowledge. I will. Uh, I'll leave that to you guys. I'm happy with my graphic design degree. Y'all can have assembly. <laughs> you and your color wheels and things like that. Exactly. Right. <laughs> All right. So uh, then, how did you get into .NET? Then, what what attracted you to that uh, arena? It was it was sort of by accident, really. It was just a company that um, around the corner was using .NET. I, I started, actually, no, I lied. They were using classic ASP. And so I was doing, yeah, old school ASP, doing all the VB script in the in the browser, or I think. I think you could actually do it in the browser at that point. I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was it was <laughs> nice and secure. I've been there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. And then so they, they slowly drifted onto ASP.NET, the first early remnants of that. But I, and I, so I got a taste for it then. But then really it was, because I was coming out of C++ and trying, I was trying to build forms using OpenGL and using C++. That was, it, it wasn't fun. And that's that's why I found, I just, just a bit Googling or what the equivalent was at the time. of, uh, And I found WinForms and just, you know, it was so easy. Suddenly it was literally just drag something on, double click it, and you've got a form instead of having to try and work out pixel locations. And, I think I think WinForms is actually a really good place to learn programming because, like you said, you've got that designer. You can just literally just drag something onto onto the you know, onto the designer. You can see it straight away. I started Absolutely. yeah when I started Windows programming it was fully when I think it was VB three or something like someone I, I got like a pirated version of VB three. It was like five meg file or something you know, back in the early nineties or late late nineties sometime. So so, so Andrew, you moved from um, WinForms. Yep. So you moved from WinForms then into the web. Yeah, so this talked to a few different companies there, just doing little little bits and pieces on the side, really, sort of contract work, really. And yeah, that's where I sort of discovered the web at that point, going from a few bits of, yeah, a few WinForms apps 
obviously the WinForms apps, then they needed a back end. So that's where you start building APIs. And from that, yeah, just got generally into ASP.NET and been pretty much just on the web ever since. I haven't touched another WinForms app since then, <laughs> which I guess was eight or nine years ago now. Andrew, people may not know you straight off, but I can bet you money if they do a search for something in ASP.NET Core or like ASP.NET uh, migrations or configuration, your blog will be on the first page. Because um, <laughs> I have actually used several of your, your posts. And I think we're going to talk about a, a few of the things you've you've gone into. But what got you into to blogging about .NET? So I was working at a job and I was it was ASP.NET at the time. It was just the beginnings of ASP.NET Core were starting to be, be whispered around, really. And so I sort of, I, I started tinkering on the side. I didn't have any blog at that point. I didn't have anything like that. There was, and the, the blog was basically a way for me to force myself to teach myself ASP.NET Core. It was a way for me to look at the code and by, by knowing I was always going to be putting out another blog post every week, I would look into something new, try and learn about it and teach it. So it, it was... It was really a selfish thing. It was just so I could make myself learn it. But since then, it's just, yeah, it's, it's just become one of those things. I do a new blog post every week, just normally with things I've run into at work, tacking problems or new things that are coming out. Cool. So I think the, one of the main topics we want to talk about is using .NET and Kubernetes. So for those that aren't familiar with Kubernetes at all, kind of give us an intro to that first. Sure. So... Kubernetes is an orchestration platform for containers, which in itself needs an explanation probably. And a lot of people have probably heard of containers and Docker. And really they are, a, they, they seem to be the future of deployments where you can wrap up all of your dependencies, all of your operating system into a file. You describe, describe what you want and you don't have to, when you deploy that Docker file, you don't have to have the dependencies already installed on the image. They come with you. Everything's packaged up as a single artifact. So the trouble you have with that is when you start deploying those around, you need to manage them. You need something to control when they're deployed, when they're shut down, which one new ones are run. And Kubernetes fills that niche. Kubernetes is, controls your Docker containers. So does your app typically have more than one container running? So it depends. It, it, it depends. Typically, an app... So a single ASP.NET Core app would just be a single container. But the whole app as a whole, you might split that into multiple services. So you might want to have separate apps if you want to deploy them separately. You might have a separate container, which is just doing sort of message handling. If you've got a RabbitMQ or some sort of message bus, you might just want to have that deployed separately. Again, really anything that you deploy separately or you'd want to deploy separately or control separately or scale separately, you'd put that in a separate container so that you can um, manage that independently of the other ones. So, so Kubernetes, would you say is useful? It's not useful if you've, if you've got an app that it's only got one container, but it is useful if you've, got more, if you've got an app that's got multiple containers and you can decide when to turn containers on and off. I, mean, I wouldn't have said it's, it's not useful, but it's certainly overkill at that point. That's, it's really it's really not going to bring you a huge amount. It's give you a lot of complexity if you've just got a single app. At that point, you really probably wouldn't be looking at something like Azure App Service or a, a 
Paz operating there because there's not a lot of management to be done. There's not really much orchestration. Mm. It's only when things start getting complex that it becomes very useful. So Kubernetes is kind of like the conductor for an orchestra. And each one of the containers is like the musicians in the orchestra. And the conductor <laughs> says, okay, you start now. Okay. And really keeps the beat so everybody's in sync. And then, you know, when everything needs to stop, the conductor says stop. So that would be Kubernetes, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy. Yeah, good analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you choose Kubernetes? I know the company you're working for, right, had some ASP.NET apps that you've migrated into core and got them running into Kubernetes. What was the, the, the thought behind that? So I wasn't actually part of the, the initial decision, but the, the, the fundamental problem was Windows deployments were being problematic. Um, they had probably about a dozen apps, sort of, it wasn't quite microservices, but in separate services giving, you know, separate parts of the domain. They were all uh, all deployed on Windows IIS machine with, mm. it, it, was, it worked, but it was flaky. There was certain problems and, and trying to get zero downtime deployments was difficult. And there was, they had message handling services running in the background, which were deployed as Windows services. And the deployment code was just, it was full of all sorts of hacks. Like you try and you try and stop the service, the service doesn't stop for some reason. So you try and deploy it and it won't deploy because it's still running. And it was, it, it was, it was just a bit messy. And I think they had basically had enough. They were already using Python for doing some various machine learning stuff. And so they were already deploying to Linux machines. And Kubernetes really just seemed like the best option. It was solving, it was going to solve the problems, basically. It was going to solve that deployment problem, the orchestration problem, and talking between the different apps. I can see that. Yeah. I've I've had those issues, right? Where you have a Windows service and it hangs and there's nothing you can do but restart the machine. And of course that's not ideal. So Exactly. And that was the, you know, having to go in every now and again and just reboot the VM was just, it, it got too much. Yeah. So what's it like to set up Kubernetes? I mean, you, you tell it about each one of your different containers, but what do you tell it beyond that? So setting up Kubernetes itself is not for the faint-hearted and not something I have actually really had a lot to do with. It's, there's a lot of networking. You need to understand, you know, how, how, how the different networks work, you need to understand VPCs, and it's not, I, I, if I would have said it's beyond standard developer fare, <laughs> actually setting up the Kubernetes cluster. The good thing is that generally you don't have to do that a lot of the time. Like I've, I've got other colleagues that are good at that side of it, and they've handled that for me <laughs> in terms of what I do is deploy to the Kubernetes cluster. Similarly, if you're, if you're deploying to AKS, so the Azure Kubernetes service or there's EKS is the AWS version. They take care of essentially setting up a cluster for you. You just have to deploy it to it. So that's that's more of a sort of developer DevOps role that I've I've been in. Yeah, it can't be as bad as setting up a SharePoint cluster, but <laughs> yeah, I, I get what you mean there. So deploying to Kubernetes, you know, you're you're pushing your containers out there, but still there has to be some configuration about how it knows when to start things and when they shut things down. How do you do that? Absolutely. So there's there's certain primitives in that Kubernetes uses. So you have the smallest, the smallest unit you've got is a pod. 
And a pod is typically like one container, but it, it can have multiple containers in there if you want to do sort of side. It's called a sidecar when you have little containers which are running extra services for you. But typically, you'd have essentially one container in a single pod. That pod, you then combine multiple instances of that pod together to form a service. And Kubernetes can then assign each of those pods a separate IP address, and the service acts as the load balancer across these different pods. And so you have to configure all of these different layers. You have to configure what you want to go in your pods. You have to configure how many you want to be deployed, what service you want to call the service to um, direct traffic between them, and how you want to expose that outside the cluster. So all that side of it, you manage essentially using YAML files. That's the Kubernetes primitive for configuration, just YAML everywhere. It is so funny. And I even hear this from the Microsoft people. They're like, yes, we get you don't like YAML, but it's what it is. So just learn it and be happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's there's some tools that can help with that. So the one thing we use is called Helm, which is essentially a templating language on top of the YAML, which could just reduce the amount of duplication you have. And they have some sort of boilerplate templates that you can set up, which makes it a lot easier to get started. So actually deploying a service, you first need to build your containers. You build your ASP.NET Core application you inside a container, and then you push that container up to a registry, which is accessible from your cluster. At that point, you can then deploy your YAML files into your cluster, which tells it where to pull the Docker files from, how to run, and what endpoints to expose. And where you deploy it, is this, in, is this onto Azure? So we're not, we're doing it to AWS. And so we're essentially running our own Kubernetes cluster just in VMs at the moment with a view to moving to, to the managed service later. But as everything we have is in AWS, it's, I, haven't really, I haven't really played with the Azure side of it. But it's essentially that, yeah, if they, the, the managed clusters are, seem like the way to go, really. Okay. So you're deploying it to just a, like a virtual, v, virtual machine on AWS? Exactly. So we've got, we've got several virtual machines in AWS, which are then all networked together to form the Kubernetes cluster itself. So I'm not actually dealing with the VMs generally, but that's kind of transparent in the background. You, all you see is just one coherent cluster over the top of it. And so you're interacting with the, the cluster has an API, an admin API, which is what we use in the back end. So that's what all our scripts use to, to uh, deploy our applications. So, so what would be the benefit of deploying Kubernetes like into onto a VM versus just using something like an like an app service then? Honestly, I wouldn't recommend doing it to a VM at this point. We've been running it for a while now. At the time, the managed service wasn't it had I had a few issues. At this point, the, the managed EKS and things like that are I, I think it's fair to say they're the way to go for initial running some sort of huge cluster and you need to have really tight management over them. I can't see a reason to do that at this point. Yeah, because I mean, on a, on a VM, you're still going to have to do your own security patching and things like that, and, and your own kind of all that, all, that, all that management underneath. Yep, exactly. Which is it's just not worth it if you can get away with, without having to do that. Absolutely. Mm. Does Kubernetes do anything like health checking so it knows, you know, this little pod, this container is still working the way that it should? Absolutely. So that that's that's really integral to the way Kubernetes works. They have multiple types of health checks. So you have liveness checks and readiness checks and startup checks, which startup checks are fairly self-evident. It's basically an endpoint in your application. It calls 
And once your application starts up, you start returning a 200, it knows that pod is alive. Lightness checks is the same thing. It pings that just constantly, just to make sure that your app is still running. And readiness checks are slightly different. They, that's, that tells it whether it can route traffic to you or not. And so it uses these, these liveness and readiness checks to decide which pods are alive, which ones need to be restarted, because you know, your, your app may have hung. Normally, you'd run more than one instance of the application. So if it hangs, that's fine. Kubernetes just restarts it in the background, and that's fine. You just carry it on. And the other good thing about this is it means you can have zero downtime deployments just really easily. Um, you just deploy your next instance of your application, and Kubernetes will wait for the new wait for the new pods to start up so that they're healthy. And then once they're healthy, it, can, it will divert traffic across to them. And then it will slowly wind down your old pods. So you just get that rolling deployment without any issue at all. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, right? Don't have to worry about once A is ready, flip B to A or back and forth, or this is our staging versus production, and we're going to rotate the two. It just handles it. That's great. Exactly. That, and that's, for me, that is the biggest selling point because it's, it's so easy to do that. It just works. Is there anything special about the containers that you use in Kubernetes? Are they aware that they're even inside of or being orchestrated by Kubernetes? Uh, it's up to you. Like They don't have to be at all. For most purposes, no. They're, they're just a standard ASP.NET Core application listening typically on a local host. And Kubernetes takes care of forwarding that port that it's listening. So it's listening on port 80 probably in, in the container or port 5000 for ASP.NET Core apps. And then it just forwards that out to an appropriate port and funnels the traffic where it needs to go. Um, the actual application doesn't have to care at all. It can if it's if there's specific things that it wants to get access to. You can absolutely hook into that. You can expose the underlying file system and things like that if you like. Generally speaking, it's you, do, you don't want to. You want the app to be just stateless if possible. That makes things a lot easier, and to just inject configuration using environment variables, preferably. So how much fun was it converting from .NET Framework to .NET Core? It was fun. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't too bad. In, in actual fact, it, it, it wasn't too bad. And there's, part of that was to do with the application subs converting. And partly was, was timing. And so we were basically at that point just running web APIs using Owen and Katana, which is sort of the precursor to ASP.NET Core. And so in a lot of ways, it was the same. You had a startup class. You have your APIs, controllers, all, all configured the same. They all look the same. You have the concept of middleware. So it transferred across pretty well. The biggest problem initially was lack of support for .NET Core in the NuGet packages, because this was, this was 2017, so it was Bit of a way back when we started this process, and we also started at .NET Core one, and that that was just a non-starter. Really trying to migrate something at .NET Core one wasn't happening, so we waited for two, and then that was all good. And was the main motiv motivation so that then you can containerize your solution? Is that the main reason you did it? Yeah, pretty much. There was it was it was multiple reasons, but there was Windows containers weren't really a thing at that point, and even now they're still essentially inferior to, to Linux containers and they're so much bigger and, you know, chunkier. Linux is generally cheaper to run in the cloud. There's no real reason to be on, you know, stuck on .NET framework in that case. 
if you're not going to, if you're not actually going to be deploying to Windows, you need to move to Diet Core. It was all, yeah, it, it was, it was, a, it was a lot of reasons, as well as the fact that Microsoft is clearly, especially now with .NET five, essentially saying that .NET Core is the future. So mm-hmm. it was just the way things were starting to point, really. Yeah, unless you're stuck on web forms like I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to get off them, but it's just got a lot of technical debt there. Yeah, it's difficult. It's there's always that battle as well. Is it worth migrating something? If it's something, if it's if it's not interactive, you know, development, it doesn't seem worth it. But this was their main application that they were intending, and we're still working on now. So it clearly was the right choice to make at that point. What did you find as far as like, what advice did you figure out for people that might be doing something like this as far as docs go? Because I got a mixed app where the API server is still in .NET and then the UI server up front is in .NET Core. And I find that certain things, like I was trying to look up how to implement filters and that's, you know, where you've got a hook. So all the pages go through that before they go to the actual page itself. Anyways, the docs I found almost bewildering trying to figure out, am I on a .NET Core or a .NET doc about filters? Is it the right version? I found it very difficult just to look up a concept like that because they weren't implemented exactly the same across the different versions and then the different families. Right, yeah. So so that's on docs.microsoft.com, I assume. Mm-hmm. And so in the top left-hand corner, I think it is, they have a, a drop-down where you can choose the, which version your ASP.NET Core you're looking at. Right. But they do, I think, I'm pretty sure they still have the sort of .NET Framework Web API docs up there as well, just in slightly different URLs. And I occasionally run into them and I have no idea how I've got to them a lot of the time. So I, I'm not, I can't help you there, I'm afraid. I, I have the same problem. <laughs> okay, so, so like, not just something I'm doing wrong necessarily on that one. No, I, I think because it used to be that the .NET Framework like docs all looked old and so you knew they were <laughs> you're on the old stuff but they smartened them all up so <laughs> so yeah you can you can definitely choose the version of .NET Core that you're looking at with the little drop down on the left so that that's something that I do need to use occasionally and what core are you on now it sounds like you st- tried with one I'm on two one right now which seems to be pretty decent have you made it to three or what, what are you guys working with now yeah so we have most of our things are on we're either on three one or two one with a, the, the two one stuff is mostly because they're applications we haven't needed to touch. As soon as we come back to them, we're upgrading to three one. There's a little bit of a little bit of a jump you have to make between two and three. It's not it's not hard to do, but you have to redo some of your authorization and you have to re, that's so the way routing works. They switch to using endpoint routing in Netcore three, which makes things a little bit different. But generally speaking, it should be it should be pretty smooth. Uh, Two one to three one migration we did. A smallish app took me a day or two, and that was it. So it shouldn't be too bad. And going to five from three looks like it'll be very easy. Oh, that's good news. Do you know is five the one where they're going to finally unify everything? So .NET and .NET Core will be the same, or is that further out than five? It's it's sort of. There's there that was always the intention that it was going to be five, and I think they unified the BCL for Mono, so all of I think they're using the same code base for Mono and .NET Core now, but the Xamarin toolchain hasn't been pulled in yet. That was supposed to be in .NET five, but that's going to be in .NET six. Okay. I think that's the one I want. This is the Xamarin tool. <laughs> .NET six is going to be LTS as well, so that .NET five is 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 the current release, so you still get a year and a bit of support for it, but. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. It's actually amazing uh, how quickly LTS or support or deprecated stuff is happening these days. Not that it's a bad thing. It's like you said, the transitions aren't as significant as going from framework to core, but it's just, it's it's interesting to see the new cycle. Oh yeah, yeah LTS is only three years, right? Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, like, you look at .NET, was it 4.8? That, that was probably released five, 10 years ago now or something. So that's still being weekly supported. So. And that'll be supported forever as well. Yeah, for sure. There'll always be one of those. It'll be like the COBOL of in 20 years' time, you know. There'll be an app yeah. that's on .NET 4.8. Yeah, it's it's part of Windows, so re- they really can't get rid of it until you know they'd have a complete rewrite of Windows. You know, yeah, right. someday might, that might happen, but not anytime soon. Why wow, you just you got me picturing myself in twenty years, hunkered over a keyboard, <laughs> writing .NET, and people pointing at me like, "Yeah, see the old guy over there doing .NET." Yeah, he's he, he's he's lost it. He's so far behind. <laughs> yeah, probably the old guy who gets paid two hundred and fifty dollars an hour to work. Right? On that, yeah, yeah. Because right. no one else knows about it anymore. <laughs> in twenty years, I hope I'm sitting on a beach in retirement. Uh, I won't be, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, so, Andrew, we're on. Um, one of the apps I'm, I'm using right now does have the two parts to it. It's got the API server and then it's got the UI server. And so on that, we're actually using Docker Compose to run the two different Docker court and then coordinate them. And even for that, there's a little bit of networking, like what's on what port and how they find each other and stuff. Now, have you used some of that? And then can you kind of just bring people through why you would move into Kubernetes then from Docker Compose? So... Docker Compose is actually it's it's very similar in principle to Kubernetes. It's it, it yeah it's an orchestrator. It connects pods together. The only thing that's sort of different is the scale. I think it's not it's not intended necessarily for you know a production. Well, I, I don't know actually. I'm not I'm not <laughs> I'm not entirely sure if it is intended for production or not. I use it locally for testing. I use it for integration tests actually. So I use it so if one wants to test ASP.NET Core apps. With a, de- with a real database. So we spin up an instance of Postgres and we spin up um, like RabbitMQ inside a Docker Compose file. We're running that on the build server. So we run proper end-to-end tests using uh, Docker Compose. In terms of Kubernetes, like it's it's essentially the same principle. It manages some of the things for you. So you shouldn't have to worry about ports quite so much, depending on how, it, but it's all, it, once you get to the details, sometimes you do. In my current setup because I'm I work on a Windows machine, but I'm running currently running a VM with, with my Kubernetes cluster for local development. And so I have a bit of mapping back and forth between which which does require specifying ports and things like that. So in principle it's very similar. Some of my colleagues they are running on Linux machines and they use all sorts of fancy tools that I don't really know how to use, which means they can get away with it. They do they do their development actually inside the Kubernetes cluster itself, so they don't have to worry about any of that sort of thing. But I haven't quite, haven't quite braved that yet. <laughs> um, so if you wanted to, in your, in your environment you're working in, could you just run raw, just Visual Studio, press start and go, or do you need to be using containers to do your dev work? So 
I I do run Raw just Visual Studio and JetBrains Rider is the one I use. And it's exactly that. So the way I the way we've got it set up is I run a little reverse proxy in front of my Kubernetes cluster, and that checks to see if I'm running my local like Visual Studio version of the app. And if I am, then it reads my traffic to that. If not, then I have sort of the older version of the uh, the app running in my Kubernetes cluster and it uses that. So it uses that for your services I'm not working on, for example. Yeah, because I mean, I found if you can run just directly from Visual Studio, then the cycles to like debug, set a breakpoint, find it, and then rerun again are just so much faster than if you'd have to do dev through a container. So I can't imagine like if you're, if, I, I bet you're more productive than your Linux classmates. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to get into a contest like that. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants that war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. One, well, I was wanted to say one thing I've noticed, and of course I haven't done this on a day-to-day setup, but right now that Docker is integrated into Visual Studio, if your project or solution is Docker-based, you can spin it, test it locally, get all your debug points, and it's still being Docker. It's just kind of off to the side. And the stuff that I've spun up and tested that, I found that it was it was pretty smooth, right? It, it wasn't a difficult process to, to, get, to get going. That's not bad. Yeah. Yeah, VS Code has some interesting things as well, if you're if that's the sort of thing you like to use. They have remote remote debugging and remote development, which is, it's kind of mind-blowing the way it works. Funneling of all of the context back across your uh, to your machine, even though it's running up in the cloud somewhere else, I think even the whole I uh, live sharing in Visual Studio Online stuff that they're developing is it is mind blowing, right? How does that yeah. work? <laughs> <laughs> I actually used Live Share for the first time this week, so it was interesting. Cool, you know, it was a pretty good experience. You know, it's it's not quite the same as uh, you know remoting in because. If you're trying to you show somebody around, you know, getting it to follow what you're seeing and so you can see everything was a little more difficult. But actually, you know, to get let multiple people working on the same set of code, it was awesome. Do you yeah, think you still also need like a Teams session or something like that? Or like a screen sharing? No, not screen, like a, just a, like a, just like another like session. Like go to meeting or yeah, something that kind like of that. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, if you're trying to demonstrate something to somebody, I think that, type of uh you know share your desktop works better than than live share does but so andrew something else that you've had to deal a good bit with is configuration inside of your applications and i know that's something that we've all had to deal with and all spent weeks on and and you know banging our head against the wall i find that with dotnet core it is significantly better but there are still stumbling blocks what are some of the ones that you've run across? So, so with the migration thing, initially, there's a fundamental problem of everything stored in web configs in, in the .NET framework. And then moving that across, you have to get all of that config out somehow. So I actually wrote a little tool which converted all those web configs into just into JSON files, because that's why ASP.NET Core tends to use. You can, read, you can read web config files directly, but it's just not idiomatic. And then at that point, you essentially get a dictionary of key value pairs, just string values to, to uh, string keys to string values. And so then the ASP.NET Core version of things is to use strongly typed configuration, which means you essentially map those values to POCO object, to a normal C-sharp class, which works really well. 
um, if you can get your configuration going there, you can have layers of configurations. So you can have production environment settings overriding your sort of default settings. Um, you can pull your configuration from all sorts of different places. So you can pull it from the JSON files, but then you also pull it from environment variables or key vaults. And in any way you've got configuration, you can generally pull it from. I saw someone wrote a uh, configuration provider that used, used like GPS coordinates, which was <laughs> just as a comedy one. <laughs> oh, so you mean like based on your location, you get different configuration values? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Just for fun. Not, oh, I'm not yeah. sure it was in production, that one. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I've recently been dealing with some configuration stuff in .NET Core myself. And it's, and it's funny because I actually read one of your blog posts and took some of your advice to, to resolve a configuration issue earlier this week, not even realizing so, we were going to be doing an episode with you. <laughs> so, so, so I'm interested, what was, what was the issue that you were running into? Well, the application I'm working on, it's got multiple libraries and two apps. Well, three, an API, a web app, and a admin app, right? And the web app had a bunch of tenant configuration inside of it that only it needed at the time. But we're having to expand the admin app to, to allow for more permissions and more tenant access and things of that nature. And so it needed that chunk of JSON, right? And you know, I talked with my coworkers and we could duplicate it in the management app, which is not ideal because if it changes in the web app and you don't change in the management app, it blows up, right? And we looked at uh, a suggestion that actually, you know, found your website where you could set up a separate project and then share that project with the other two and be able to, to talk to the config that way. What we ended up doing was created a separate uh, shared settings.json with, of course, development stage and production, put all the shared config inside of that, and that sits in the web app, and we're actually linking it into the management app and, and having it copy when it's newer, right? And we had to do some, some stuff in, in uh, the main uh, function to make sure that everything found the JSON, but the it's... An, it's it's one of those things, right, where you got to find what works for you in your right situation. There are multiple ways of going about it, but, but that that was it in a nutshell. Is that, sharing, is that sharing done during build time, Caleb, or is it done during runtime that you're going on finding the shared JSON config? It's, uh, I believe it's on build. When you, when you build it or deploy it, it's actually copying the version from the web app into the admin app. Okay. Yeah, that's good. We got a similar problem that if the stuff being in web config is kind of a pain because after you get it deployed, if you find something that needs to change, you got to right. roll the whole app again. And so we actually had that happen just today where there was, oh, okay. it was pointed at a server that had an expired cert and we wanted to go point it somewhere else. Well, it's in the web config, so that's not just a trivial little change of text file thing. Right. Well, and in this case, you can actually tell that it's a linked file inside the project. It has a different icon. Okay. Um, so you know that it's getting pulled in from somewhere else. So I like yeah. that. Yeah, that's that's the exact approach that we have as well. So we have uh, we have a shared settings with shared settings development, everything like that, which pulls into all of our apps. And then you have the app settings, which overrides those as well. Right. Yep. So you have those extra layers. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we got it right. <laughs> <laughs> 
on one of my full framework applications, I took just about everything I could out of web config, put it in a JSON file, and then wrote an in-memory uh, caching provider that reads those JSONs. And mm -hmm. then if I ever needed to change it, I could just change the JSON, tell the caching provider to clear itself, reload, and go from there without actually to make a change to web config. Because web configs are PETA, especially in IIS. <laughs> Well, that's another thing where, where Kubernetes sort of comes in here because, you know, the, the sort of the, the oh, I don't want to do another deployment. It's no big deal with Kubernetes. You just push it up and it goes out and it's it's sort of, it's it's done. That whole caching of JSON files, reading them into memory, that's pretty much what ASP.NET Core does. So if you do need to, you do need to get on there, edit the files, it just, that, that's exactly the way it works. So you've got the best of both worlds there. Yeah. Hey, hey, Sean, I'm curious. What did you use as the trigger your system to then realize that the file had changed and needs to reread its config? Right now it's manual. Okay. Because that way I can say clear now, you know, I can tell it when to do it. It, okay. it doesn't actually look at the timestamp every once in a while, which would be an option. It could look at the timestamp on a file on a polling basis. And if it changed, it could clear and reload. But right mm -hmm. now I just do manual. When you say manual, do you mean completely shut it down and restart it or something a little general? No, I have a, I have a, a management page in the application that I can go to for each one of the, the cache, you know, configuration uh, sections. And I can say, you know, clear all the settings or I can say clear by this section, this section, whatever, whatever I changed. Oh, that's not bad. So it's, it's developer manual. It's not like manual, manual, right? Like I'm gonna create a button. All I gotta do is click it and I don't have to remember how it does it or what it does, it just does it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so at ASP.core, you, um, you, you get file reloads sort of for free. It detects file changes and it will repopulate configuration. But there's also an IE options monitor object, which you can use to trigger all sorts of things. So you can manually update configuration and have that essentially send a signal throughout the rest of your application as well. Say config's changed, refresh yourself. So you can do similar things like that with some of the built-in IE options stuff as well. Yeah, Joel, one of the tricky things about that if you're using in-memory cache is if you're in a cluster, you have to have some sort of communication between all of them to say, you know, clear all of the ones in the instances, not just the, the one. I was lucky enough that we're just running on a on a on an active failover type of system. So there's only one that is actually loaded at a time. So that made it a little bit easier without having to do messaging between servers. Mm-hmm. So Andrew, um, for people that are moving from full framework into .NET Core, what are kind of the, some key you know, things that they're gonna run into that they might not be familiar with? So middleware is probably the first one. That's kind of the fundamental building block of ASP.NET Core applications. If you're coming from full framework, then you're used to modules and handlers and middleware is, is the alternative to those. And that's sort of a simpler version of modules in that you, instead of having lifestyle, uh, life cycle hooks that you have to pick up and know which, which ones are running where, it's just a linear list of middleware. And you can apply a function. So your request comes in, you apply a function using middleware, you apply another function using another middleware. And so you sort of, you just build up this linear processing of the request. That's probably the first thing. One tricky part is when you get to authentication and machine, machine keys. That's, that's Difficult, and to put it mildly, if you're trying, especially if you're trying to do a gradual migration from ASP.NET to ASP.NET Core, 
there's there's a docs on it, but you have to follow that carefully. Yeah, one of the um, things that I've thought about for migrating my full frame at work is to getting shared authentication between the two. So it only had to log in once and certain sections of the application would be core and other sections that I haven't rewritten yet would still be full framework. Yeah, and you can do that. It's just, it's not trivial to do. There's, I, I believe you have to essentially move to the ASP.NET core authentication and retrofit your uh, ASP.NET applications to use the, a shim which plugs across. And it, it actually works as a supported scenario. It's just, you have, you have to make sure you get everything right. <laughs> And yeah, I or maybe use something like identity server that might work as well. Yeah, it's a similar thing. Um, we have, so the, the first application I moved across to was identity server. And so that sort of worked fine because identity server is the only thing creating the cookies. So if you have identity server as being the only thing that you're using the data protection stuff itself, that can be a bit smoother. If you're sharing, like if you're doing cookie authentication between your different applications, that's where you have to start. Yeah, being careful. And I know you can uh, wire it up in .NET Core to use like a third-party provider or an Azure or Facebook, or you can use forms and kind of do it within your own app. Which method were you working with when you went to your when you did your core migration? So we were already running uh, an identity server. So each of the API, so it sort of was that model. It was the third party doing authentication, but that third party was us. So. The first thing I did was migrate that identity server from identity server three to four and do the migration to uh, ASP.NET Core at that point as well. And yeah, that, that went pretty smoothly. I, I started it too early. I started it at Net Core one and had to hang around for sort of six months while it <laughs> while we waited for two to come out. But it got there and it was that that went pretty smoothly. That was pretty bleeding edge. <laughs> yeah, it was lots it was of maybe cuts. a bit bold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Three years ago, my team started Greenfield Project using Angular Release Candidate and .NET Core Release Candidate, like you know, right <laughs> oh, before God. they. But it was a three-year project, so by the time we we got to the end, we were on Angular six and .NET Core three point one. So <laughs> perfect, yeah. right? Well timed. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it was a mistake for them to have called .NET Core one point zero one point zero. They they probably should have. Named it 0 0.1 or, or something. Well, they're be... fixing that now with .NET 5. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there used to be a Microsoft legend back in the day that's like, if you wanted something stable, you never went on one and you didn't go on two, you always waited for three. And I don't know if that still is that mm. way, but in this case, it sounds like NetCore is somewhat that way still. Yeah, yeah it does seem to be. <laughs> one of the big uh, changes from full framework to .NET Core for me seemed to be you know, understanding how dependency injection works because you don't really have that so much, especially in web forms in full framework. Yeah, absolutely. That's something you could plug in and there were points to, that you could plug into it but with the various different containers. But in ASP.NET Core, it's absolutely, it's completely built in. The framework itself uses dependency injection. So that's definitely something to try and get your head around. And it's a, it's a limited form of dependency injection as well. It's very specific. It's constructor injection which sort of means there's fewer concepts to try and figure out, but it's definitely something to get your head around. Yeah, that's one of the things that I learned. It's, it's not like you have this dependency injection, you know, space that you can just call into. You have to call it in the, in the constructor and then pass it down 
to everything underneath that. You can't just new up something and say, get this object out of dependency injection yet. If it's not at the top, you have to pass it down. Yeah, exactly. So you, you can do that sort of service location if you need to. You can inject an iService provider into your services. So if you if you really have to do it like that, you can do that pattern, but it's generally discouraged and it's less performant and it's can cause testing issues and things. So the, the right way to do it is, like you say, you declare in your constructor all the things that you're going to need and then let that pass its way down. Ideally, if you shouldn't have that much that you depend on, if all goes well, I mean, if you're on web forms, that's maybe not the case. <laughs> Generally speaking, you should try and only have a few dependencies if possible. Otherwise, it's a bit of a smell. Well, is there anything else you, you'd like to, to tell us, Andrew, about your, your journey from .NET Framework to .NET Core and Kubernetes? <laughs> There's so many things I could go into, but I think that's pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty good overview. Are you the, excited um, about .NET 5? Yes and no. Like it's it's there's certain parts of it which are very exciting. I think Blazor is very interesting. I think the performance improvements again, they've just done amazing things just by getting it faster and faster. But in a lot of ways for ASP.NET Core, it's it's sort of boring in that there's not it's just gonna be the same. It's just gonna be better. So it's kind of good. <laughs> I don't have to I'm just gonna update things to .NET 5 and it's nothing's gonna break, it's just gonna carry on, it just looks fine. So yeah, I think, I think boring is good, to be honest. I hate having to upgrade and there's like a million breaking changes you know, and things like that. So, exactly. so have you it's, tried it's, that it's with your project? Have you tried building on a .NET 5? I've, I've done a couple of testers with the the RC versions that they've got now. I haven't, haven't got anything in production or anything like that at this point, but I've done some tests and it's it changed the packet numbers, changed the target framework, and it worked. That was literally all that, all that was required. So it's a good sign. Do you reckon it's worth going to five, or do you reckon it's better to wait till six comes out because that is LTS? Yeah, the LTS thing is a bit tricky because I've seen I've seen a lot of people say exactly that that they're not going to go to five; they just go wait for the wait for the LTS. The trouble is, you should be updating your applications every month. They have security fixes every month, so to actually stay supported, you still need to be updating, even if you're on the LTS every month. And but so isn't, in that, yeah. There's a lot less breaking changes, though, if you, if you stay in the LCS version. Yeah, there is. And I think the fact that going from 3.1 to 5 has been so easy means that mm. I'd go to 5 because the breaking changes from 3.1 to 6 or 5 to 6 are going to be the same, essentially. So you're sure. going to have to do, do that same jump at some point. So I'll probably, I'll probably move to 5 just for the benefits. You get the other options you can use. The extra bits that are in there, the extra GLPC support, the HTTP2, I think, has got better in .NET 5, various, various bits like that. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. Okay, so if there's nothing else, I think I'm going to move us into picks. All right. How about, uh, Joel, what's your pick for this week? Well, we have reached that time of year when you put away your summer bicycles because there's no more riding. This time of year, once you get any rain or snow, the trails just don't dry out. It's just too close to freezing. 
So we're in the little waiting game now until actually they freeze over and you can get out your fat tire bikes and ride across the snow in the trails. So if you want to be on the roads, though, you need something with spikes on it. And the dilemma there is there's so many different levels of how spiked tires are and are the kind of spikes that will like wear out if you ride them on tar or the kind that made for less snow and will work on tar. And there's a bike shop owner, Peter White Cycles at www.peterwattcycles.com. And I'll put a link here in the notes. And he has an amazingly detailed article on the different levels of spikes for your tires, when you'd want to use what level and what kind of riding you expect to do. And if you do have one that's too spiky, how to be a little more gentle on them if you're riding across tar, it, it was great. And so using that, I was able to pick out a pair of tires and get them ordered up for, uh, for bikes for my wife and I. So we will be winter ready when those, uh, they're, let's see, they're on DHL shipping here. They're supposed to arrive on Monday. So we should be ready for the snowmageddon here and uh, by Monday. Again, thank goodness I'm not in the north. Uh, <laughs> I don't, uh, that's awesome. You know, I'm a little dis disappointed this year, you know, because of COVID and everything. I'm not going to get to play hockey. So um, oh. it was really, it was really fun last year that I played. So it's just a little too risky being in a high risk, medium risk group. Um, my wife, myself, so I'm not going to do hockey. So. I got to find something, but you do, you got to have something to get through the winter, man. You can't just sit there and read a book. It's like, that's not enough. <laughs> All right. So why, what's your pick? So actually on the topic of, I guess, exercise, my, so I guess a lot of people have started working from home and it's actually been really, really good for me because I've kind of set up a, a bit of a, like a home gym. And it's the first time in my life where I've actually started doing any kind of gym work, like for, for regularly. And it's, and yeah, so one thing I really recommend is to kind of just build your home gym. But and as I as I built it, I kind of realized that you don't actually need like that much equipment. Like I've only got like this tiny spare room where, where we've got it. And the only thing I'm really using it is just the only thing I'm really using is just a, a bench and and just some dumbbells. And so my pick this week is are these like adjustable dumbbells that I bought. And there's just, there's just got this dial that allow you to kind of set the weight and based on you know what you set it's got some sort of mechanical thing underneath that allows it to ch change the plates really quickly so it's like super quick and just super convenient and just like this it's just like a massive space saver so so yeah like i'm i'm really enjoying um just regularly doing exercise uh, because i'm working from home and these these dumbbells have been really useful all right keep it up keep it up all right caleb what's your pick so i have something to exercise your mind versus your body. I think a while back, right, I, I did a, a book pick from blanking on his name. Oh, Deepak Chopra, Metahuman, right? And and again, it's very theoretical and kind of out there, but it was interesting book on, you know, you and your brain and the universe and all this stuff. This book is uh, in a similar vein. It is really more focused more on the mindfulness side and the science behind it and how it can help your well-being. It's called the, the Finders. Very, very interesting book. Dense, but good. The Finders, huh? Mm. Okay, so uh, my pick this week is just this week I got delivered a brand new Oculus Quest 2 VR headset. So I, 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 ordered it, I ordered it fairly early. I ordered it from Walmart in, instead of directly because that way, you know, something wasn't right or I didn't like it or something like that. I could take it back to my local store. It makes it a lot easier there. 
And I actually got it uh, quicker than some people that ordered it directly through o- Oculus. So um, it's a pretty nice unit. I'm trying to learn a new, uh, what, what are the popular games and things like that. So one of the games, you know, I'll start picking those probably as some of my picks. My first thing I was working on was called Beat Saber. It's kind of like Guitar Hero, but you're like this, you got these lightsabers and you got to hit these things flying at you. So I hear it's good exercise too. Yeah, it is. And yeah, I like the Oculus Quest because it's standalone, but you can still hook it up to your PC and use PC VR games. And the screen door effect on it is barely perceptible. Only if you like really look for it, can you see anything like that? So it's a nice, powerful unit. It's uh, been really popular because it's out of stock everywhere. So that's what maybe I'll spend my uh, my winter, you know, keeping in shape that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Andrew. You reckon, no, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Why? Oh, I was going to say, do you, so do you reckon VR is kind of there yet, you think? Because so, I've always kind of thought it was more of a novelty kind of thing. So, so do you reckon it was like, there is like a killer app that you can regularly use? Yeah, it's definitely, it's it's getting a lot more popular. You know, you can watch Netflix movies on it. So, you know, you don't have to sit on your couch and have your TV to watch Netflix. You can just, you could lay on the floor, you could lay in bed, whatever. <laughs> you can watch Netflix that way. But I think it's definitely getting a little bit better. You know, I would like the the field of view to get wider. I think that's something that they could really improve on it because right now it's kind of like looking through a set of binoculars uh, somewhat. But I think it's definitely, definitely getting better. Mm, exciting. All right. So, Andrew, what do you have for your pick? So I've got, I got a couple for you. So the first one I've got is a, it's a Chrome extension, for which is called Octotree. And this works on... When you're on GitHub, it gives you a nice solution explorer on the left-hand side of your screen. Like, So you get a proper file browser, you can click around. It's got a free version and it's got a pro version. And it's just invaluable. If you're someone who's using GitHub all the time, I find it's great. That's my first one. And my second one is a game which I found called Streets of Rage 4, which is a throwback game to when I used to play Streets of Rage 2 and 3 and on the uh, Mega Drive. And it's a new game. It's, it's just great fun. It's just a side-scrolling, but you can have coach couch co-op, so you don't have to be online to be playing with people, and it's, yeah, it's just great fun. Yeah, I remember Streets of Rage from, from my youth, I guess. <laughs> so what, is this like a rewrite, or is it just a... Like, yeah. Like a, yeah. Oh, it's, it's a cool. new game. Yeah, and it's, it, but it's got, it's got all the same characters coming back and things like this. It's just it's great fun. They even have a copy for the Switch. So oh. if you want to switch like oh, me, Caleb got it in there somehow. There you go. He right? switch in there. Go get your streets of rage. <laughs> All right, right. Great. Thanks for joining us today, uh, Andrew. If the listeners want to reach out to you and get in touch with you, we put a link for your blog in the show notes. But is there any other ways that they can reach out with questions? Sure. Yeah. It's uh, on Twitter as well, uh, Andrew Locknet. Like you say, there's my blog and it's on my book forum as well. You can uh, talk to me through there. Awesome. Awesome. So thanks for your time, Andrew. I think that yeah. was a really great episode. So hopefully lots of people get something out of it. I hope so. It was good fun. Thanks, guys. Hey, you're welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. All right. And we'll catch everybody on the next episode of adventuresin.net. Oh, one last thing. If they want to reach out to the show, please give us feedback on Twitter. Reach me at .net superhero. Dun, da, da, da. Right. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, y'all. Uh, see ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.